if cancer's taught me anything, it's obviously from what I've seen with people coming and going because they've passed away from cancer at such a young age to now as an adult. Life is is pretty short. I know it's cliche, but there's a whole world out there outside of your comfort zone. Go find it. If there's something that you've been wanting to do and you're something's holding you back, especially if it's something as silly as fear, if you're afraid to do something, just enough. You know, if you've always thought jumping out of a plane was was interesting, do it. Jump out. Jump out of a plane. Go scuba diving. Swim with sharks. Talk to somebody who you've always been afraid to talk to. Get on stage. Just get out of your comfort zone because you'll realize that at the end, you know, when it's when it's all said and done, don't try and keep as few things off the table that you wish you did. Welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on this show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided in the show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. I'm your host, Amber Barback, and today we're joined by David Fitting, an 18-year glioblastoma survivor and thriver and ambassador for the Glioblastoma Research Organization. David reached out to our organization over a year ago to be featured on our Warrior Wednesday series to be able to inspire others with his long-term story. Since then, David's become an ambassador for the Glioblastoma Research Organization and helping our mission to raise awareness and funds for this disease. David's in his late 20s and since being published on our Warrior Wednesday series, has chatted with people all over the world to inspire hope and positivity for those currently battling glioblastoma. David has become an amazing ally, a great friend, and a huge supporter of our organization, and we are so incredibly thankful to have him on the show today. Please welcome David Fitting. Welcome, David, to the show. We are so excited to have you on this week's episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You are a brand ambassador for our organization, and we are so excited for all of our listeners to hear this wonderful conversation. We know that you are a long-term GBM survivor, so we might as well just get into it. Can you talk about your entire cancer journey? I know it's been long, significant since you were a kid, so I'd love for everyone to learn more about you and your past. For sure. So my cancer journey, I guess, doesn't even really start with me. It starts with my mom. When she was 38, she was diagnosed with colon cancer, which runs in the family. My grandmother had it as well. My uncles have had it. My brothers had it. Great uncles have had it. Basically, everybody's had colon cancer. So I went with her through all her treatments. I was in pre-K and in kindergarten and just kind of accompanied her throughout her treatment. Then you fast forward A few years later, in 2003, I was diagnosed for the first time with GBM, 
which was the first of anybody in my family. I was the lucky one who drew that card. So I guess going through mine, I've been, I had cancer three times in 2003. I had my first diagnosis of GBM. 2004, I relapsed with GBM. And then fast forward to 2019, I was diagnosed with radiation-induced osteosarcoma. Going back to 2003, growing up, I was always very healthy. I'm the youngest of three, so I have an older sister and an older brother. And and you're 28 years old now, right? 29. Okay. 29 turning 30 this year. That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, going in 2003, I was 10 and I was always healthy growing up. I never got the seasonal flu, never had any allergies. My brother and sister were the ones who were in and out of the pediatrician constantly. So I never got sick until I got sick. So going back to springtime, actually around this time, going back 18 years ago, or I'm sorry, 19 years ago now, I started experiencing headaches. And at first it was, they were mild. I didn't really think anything of it and nobody did. At the time we were selling our house. So we thought if anything, some of the cleaning products were maybe irritating my head. Then the headache started to be accompanied by extreme nausea. So I was always nauseous. I would couldn't keep food down. I'd have to be picked up early from school, which I was, I had perfect attendance from kindergarten to fourth grade. I never missed school. So everything started happening very quickly. I was taken to the pediatrician and pediatrician even said, you know, what are you doing bringing him in here? I never see him. And we didn't think anything of it, really. The headaches would come and go. Then it got to the point later in April, the headaches were just, they were constant. They kept me up at night. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't eat. And I went back into the pediatrician in the week of May 6, uh, 19 years ago, I ended up in the pediatrician three times in a row. And it was after that that the pediatrician just said, this isn't normal. He went to touch the side of my head and my head hurt to the touch. I swatted his hands away. Oh, wow. So he immediately, he sent me for imaging. He sent me for a CT. And the day I got that CT, the radiology center told my mom I needed to go back to the pediatrician immediately. So I was pretty upset. I was taken out of school early that day. I hated missing school. And Mm -hmm. now I was being taken to the doctors, taken to the hospital, then taken back to the doctors. And I remember the nurses, as soon as I walked in, they made me sit with them and they just kind of kept me occupied. And my mom went back into the doctor's office by herself. And just a question for, since there are a lot of kids with GBM in our online community, for those that don't understand the process of a CT scan, can you explain how that was for you being such a young age? Sure. So CTs are, CT scans are pretty straightforward. You can get them with or without contrast. And it uses radiation to take images of the brain. So there's fluoroscopy, which would be your x-ray. Then there's CT, and that CT is not so much soft tissue, so it doesn't really pick up on fluid, but you would be able to see a mass. And then further imaging, more in-depth, would be your MRI. So if a CT, that 
the CT that I got in 2003 that diagnosed the brain tumor was without contrast. So the, the tumor was so prominent that it could be seen on a CT, which is not a soft tissue image, without contrast. And the process for that is just laying down on a table. They take a couple of shots to your brain. It's about a 10-minute procedure for a brain CT. So the doctor told my mom I had a brain tumor. And from there, we went home, packed a bag, and ended up in the hospital. But I guess leading up to all this, you know, when I think about my symptoms, obviously I had severe headaches. I mean, beyond migraine headaches, like I said, it hurt to touch the side of my head. It hurt to blink. Everything was just, if I turned my head the wrong way, it was excruciating. I had nausea, which is a big symptom of brain tumors. But the most interesting side effect that I had, and this has a lot to do with where my tumor was in the right temporal lobe, was vivid episodes of deja vu. Extremely vivid to the point where I would recognize a smell or a sound or light, especially. And I would be able to tell you everything that was about to happen in that moment as if it had already happened. That's so interesting. There was another long-term GBM survivor that we interviewed, I believe, last week. And he also mentioned having really intense deja vu. And it's interesting because a lot of the time, I think when you're Googling GBM symptoms, deja vu isn't so predominantly listed. So it's interesting to hear you say that. I thought the same thing. And I, I finally dove a little further deep into what these type of deja vu episodes are. And actually what it was in my case was right temporal lobe epilepsy. So the tumor had caused a epileptic episode essentially where it was in my brain. So that would explain why light would affect me in some way, smells. That was a pretty telling side effect, especially the second time around. So going back to the first time, I Checked into the hospital May 6, 2003, and for the first week before I even had surgery, I just underwent tests. I was tested for everything. I had multiple MRIs, cognitive tests, physical tests, and one of the tests that I had was something called a WADA test. And what that is, it's a test where you're under twilight sedation, so you're mildly conscious, and a surgeon inserts a wire through your, femoral, uh, through your femoral artery up to your brain and essentially block receptors to certain parts of the brain where the tumor is. So when it would be removed, they would see whatever cognitive or physical or mental deficits there would be from removing that tumor. Interesting enough, I had zero deficits. So wherever that tumor was, where they could remove the surrounding area to clear the margins, and then I would have zero deficits. They also found that I was 100% ambidextrous. So I'm left-handed, meaning I write left-handed. Everything else I do right-handed. I play sports. I would throw a football right-handed, kick a ball with my right foot. It just feels more natural. And they found through this test that that was because I'm 100% ambidextrous, which also helped the outcome from a physical aspect and especially from a cognitive aspect. So whatever damage I would have to my right brain, my left brain would almost just pick it up without missing a beat. Oh, wow. That's a, yeah. interesting. That's a test that I think is super important, especially for children. If you're going to have a brain tumor removed, 
Unfortunately, a lot of times there's cognitive or physical deficits that come. I think getting ahead of it with this water test and kind of just figuring out what you'll have to prepare for. Or maybe, you know, in my case, you, my life didn't change at all. Was this test something that your medical advisor had recommended or is this something that your family had researched and asked the doctors to do? This was something the neurosurgeon did. He actually okay. flew a specialist in from in-state, but they had to bring in a specialist to conduct this test. And they really, you know, one of the first time around, they did their due diligence with me because you know, I was 10 years old and the implications of removing a brain tumor like I said, a lot of times that person has cognitive deficits afterwards. They could have abnormal mm -hmm. gait, they could have speech issues, et cetera. I was just fortunate enough to not have to not have any of that due to kind of just how my brain is wired. So that was the first week, like I said, with all testing. May 13, 2003, I had my first brain surgery and my tumor was golf ball size. But the most interesting part of my tumor was it was 100% encapsulated. So it did not metastasize anywhere. In fact, the neurosurgeon said it was probably the easiest brain surgery he's ever done. Because when he opened up my skull, my tumor fell out of my skull. Oh, my goodness. And he went in, did a little bit of cleaning around, but said the margins were clear just from that tumor being encapsulated. After that was done, the pathology obviously came back that it was glioblastoma, stage four brain cancer. And I remember going into the hospital, I never thought of cancer. I never thought it would be cancer, but I also didn't have an understanding of tumors. Cancer, tumors can be cancerous, et cetera, et cetera. I thought cancer was its own separate entity. I'd never really understood it. So getting that diagnosis, I remember the surgeon took my mom out of the room, spoke with her, basically told her that I had, you know, about six months to live with this diagnosis. And then he, uh, the surgeon at the time, wanted to come in and tell me that news. But my mom was like, no, absolutely not. We're not telling a child that he has six months to live. You can go in there and tell him, we can tell him that he has cancer, but we're not going to tell him he has six months to live, which I think played a huge role in staying positive. So the surgeon came in and told me that I had cancer. And obviously my first question was, am I going to die? And that's what I asked him. And he said, you know, maybe there's a chance. And I just remember at that point, I got mad at him. And I told him to leave. I told the surgeon, leave. I don't want you in here. And I remember telling my mom, I'm, I'm not going to die. You know, I, I think back and it was partially, partially out of, you know, I was scared of it. But I, I truly felt that I was going to be okay. I, I can't explain it. It was just a gut feeling that I was going to be okay. Obviously, I didn't know the implications or the prognosis of glioblastoma stage four brain cancer. I didn't even know cancers had stages. I thought cancer was just cancer. Do you wish that was something you would have been informed of as a child, just in general? No, okay. no, not at 10 years old. I couldn't do anything with that information at a ten, as a 10 year old. Right. So that's something that my mom, I commend her for not telling me that, for not telling me that, yeah, you only have, you know, six months to live. And because I, you know, I've seen that 
I've seen parents do that to their kids and it breaks them. You, know, you yeah. start looking at your life like it's, you know, sand just dripping and slowly but surely it's coming to an end. So after my diagnosis, I was sent to a pediatric oncologist who, I mean, I can't say enough good things about it. His name is Dr. Gauda. He's a surgeon out of St. Mary's Hospital in West Palm Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. And he's just amazing. He's incredible. He's got the best bedside personality. He's what a, every pediatric doctor should be. He's warm. He's friendly. He keeps the adult conversations to the adults and lets the kids be kids. So from there, I was put on my protocol, which was Temidor, which is an oral chemotherapy, probably the most commonly used for GBM, and 36 radiation treatments. The radiation treatments took six weeks to do, and the Temidor was, I was on that for a year. So I'm going through all this, you know, I'm, I'm in the fifth grade now, going through radiation, going through chemo. And were you still attending school at this time? Yep. I was attending wow. school for as many days out of the week as I could. Really, I, I never, I didn't have too bad of a side effect to the chemo or the radiation at the time. In fact, I finished the radiation in the summer prior to school even starting, which was huge. Oh, wow. So I'm in school. I'm in the fifth grade and everything seems to be going well. You know, cancer's kind of in the background, obviously, I was on chemo. I was still getting my MRIs. I was going to the doctor for for uh, blood work, so on and so forth, checkups. But as far as thinking of surgery, thinking of you know cancer coming back, it never really crossed my mind. And then in late April, early May of 2004, I started having headaches. And shortly after that, the headaches were accompanied by dizziness, deja vu and nausea. And I was 11 years old. I knew that my tumor was back. So I had had an MRI that was scheduled for late May. And I called the oncology office and told them that it needed to be rescheduled, that I think there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was right. And sure enough, my tumor came back. And this time, I did not end up at the same surgeon that did my case the first time. He was a great surgeon. We just didn't like his bedside manner. He was extremely negative. He was dealing with quite a few malpractice suits from his spine business. And he was just, he was not a good surgeon to be working with anybody, let alone a child, because he basically told my mom when it came back the second time that that's it. There's no point of even operating. I went down to Miami Children's, which is now Nicholas Children's Hospital down in Miami, I had my surgery done there, and I was released from the hospital from when I got in the hospital, had my surgery, to when I checked out in less than 48 hours. Wow. So what I didn't know at the time was my prognosis the second time around was I was given 9 to 12 weeks to live. Mm -hmm. That was it. The surgeons at this hospital... They said the tumor had actually grown a little bit and moved towards my brainstem. They think they got everything, but they couldn't know. And with the direction it was moving, if it was still there, that would be a wrap. Obviously, if a tumor goes to the brainstem, it's, it's very difficult to treat. You can't treat it with surgery. You would have to do chemo, radiation, and, and hope it kills it. So 
Fortunately, that wasn't the case. But what these surgeons did the second time around, and this is something I always tell people when they ask me my treatments, is they implanted chemotherapy in my brain. And that's called gliadel wafers. That chemotherapy, because there was no other treatment option for GBM at that time, except for Temidor, radiation, gliadel wafers. The gliadel wafers are only indicated for recurring GBM. So I had the gliadel wafers, which gave myself and my mom an opportunity to find another alternative because the surgeons told my mom to take me home and let me get comfortable, that they're so sorry, they did everything, but this was it. And again, I commend my mom because I've seen other families take that advice and their kids aren't here. Uh, My mom said, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm going to get a second opinion. And they, they said, okay, get a second opinion. And through a, a website, which is actually kind of like a social media page for cancer patients called Caring Bridge, my mom got in touch with somebody named David Bailey, who at the time was one of the longest GBM survivors. And he told my mom, take me to Duke. Take me to Duke and see what they can do. So we flew out to Duke in July of 2004, which was what that was actually May to July was past the prognosis, uh, the expiration date the doctors gave me. So I was already doing better than we thought. I actually, that summer, I went away to my family's summer home in New Jersey, spent the whole summer there. And little known to me, my mom was devising this plan to start me on treatment, get me, get me better, not, not just let me get comfortable. And that was going to be it. She was not ready to bury her child. So we went to Duke and spoke with Dr. Garangan, who is no longer at Duke, but he was incredible. Dr. Garangan and Dr. Henry Friedman at Duke put me in a clinical trial for GBM patients with, I believe, 50 other patients worldwide. So Mm -hmm. there are people in the UK, obviously in the United States, et cetera. And I was one of, if not the only pediatric GBM patient in that study. And what was the study exactly? So the study was using a drug called CPT-11, which is commonly used in colon cancers, more more so gastroenterology, more so gastro cancer, stomach cancers, esophageal Mm -hmm. cancers, and tamoxifen, which is obviously the most wide. I mean, if you say tamoxifen, most most people know that as the breast cancer drug. That is, you know, tamoxifen and arimidex are most commonly prescribed drugs for treating breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So it was CPT-11, gliadel wafers, which I had implanted, and tamoxifen for two years. And I stayed on that treatment and everybody just kept their fingers crossed. That was it. How was your quality of life when you were undergoing all of this treatment? especially as an 11 year old. So that was, you know, I always had support and I was always positive. But I think it's not just, it wasn't just me being positive. I was surrounded by positive people. My brother, my sister, always positive. My friends, their families, my mom, especially. And also the support group at the hospital, the pediatric oncology support team, which is POST, is a group of ladies that are social workers, psychologists, are just 
volunteers who always made sure there was a place for kids to come and be kids while they were on treatment. And they played a pivotal role in me getting this treatment. I was initially supposed to get this treatment in the hospital, which took all day. And one day I found out why it took all day in the hospital. It was because pharmacy took forever to get this medication to me. So Mm -hmm. I refused to get this treatment in the hospital. I just said, I'm not going to treatment anymore unless we, I can do this somewhere else where the medication's there and I can get it. It's a two-hour drip. I don't want to be in the hospital for eight hours. And so this, the post team made it possible for me to get this chemo outside of the hospital and only, oh, wow. be, yeah, only be in the doctor's office for two to three hours. I had my own little room. I had movies. I had games. So they, they were beyond pivotal in in my success and my health, my mental and physical health. So now I was going into the sixth grade. I actually ended up doing school online in the sixth grade. Mm -hmm. I was missing a lot of school. This time around, I was on intravenous chemo. So I had a port. I would go in every Friday for four Fridays in a row, two weeks off. So it was four weeks on, two weeks off for two years. Wow. And just get my chemo treatments. And I experienced a lot more side effects with this chemo, nausea, just everything that goes along with getting chemo injected into, you know, it's, it's poison. You're poisoning yourself. Obviously, it's, it's a necessary poison, but this chemo was a little harsher than, than the Temidor, but it worked. When preparing for chemo, especially, you know, at such a young age, was there anything that you liked to bring with you? Did you... Yes. Eat or drink anything? Like, what was that little routine for you? So, chemo sucks all the electrolytes out of you, sucks all the fluid out of you. It just it flushes you. In fact, this chemo, I remember the next day, my face would be beat red as if I was sunburned. And that was just because my, I had nothing in me, no potassium, nothing. So, what I found helped was drinking a ton of smart water the day of chemo, and the day after chemo. And that helped with nausea, that helped with not feeling flush. I wasn't tired or hungover feeling the next day from this chemo uh, because I stayed hydrated. And that was a lifesaver. On top of that was prior to starting chemo, the morning of, I would take Zofran, which is an anti-nausea medicine, and Marinol, which is actually a THC-based anti-nausea prescription medicine, then I would have the nurse or the hospital infuse me with more Zofran. So I really tackled the nausea that came along with this chemo because that was Mm -hmm. the main side effect was horrible nausea. So I hate being nauseous, and I don't think anybody should be nauseous when there's things out there like Zofran or Marinol or any of these anti-nausea medicines. So Really just kind of creating my own little system with the smart water, Marinol, the Zofran, the intravenous Zofran, saltine crackers, just very bland, mild things were, it was huge and it saved me a lot of pain as far as I wasn't nauseous the day of chemo and I wasn't nauseous the day after. So I would get chemo on a Friday and on Saturday, I would be able to go outside and play. As a kid, when I had cancer, I never look sick. Right. Kind of the opposite thing happened to me. I gained a ton of weight, which, you know, typically, depending on the cancer, depending on the treatment, 
kids can't keep on any weight. They're sometimes put on anti-muscle wasting drugs where I was the opposite. I was a chubby little kid, but, <laughs> but it was great because I was, I was healthy. I was active. I skateboarded. I was able to go out with my friends, so on and so forth. So once I finished that chemo up in uh, September of 2006, I was just before my 14th birthday. I was in the eighth grade. I was done. I had my routine checkups for MRIs. It started off every six weeks. Then it went to every 12 weeks, every six months, once a year. And then it got to the point where it's like, you know what? If you feel something, come back. So I was done. You know, I went on to finish middle school. And in the time when I was on chemo towards the end, I was 13 years old and I had always wanted to play football growing up, but obviously, uh, brain cancer and head-on collisions aren't really the best. It's not the best combination. So, <laughs> so instead, I took up stand-up comedy, which I've always loved to perform. I've always loved public speaking, love getting up in front of people and talking, and I love humor. Humor is, that was probably my number one medicine for everything. And that's how I handle everything now is with- Do you have a favorite joke? that you can share? I know it's no. like the most on the spot <laughs> question. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I don't, honestly. Okay, no, that's, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I started doing stand-up comedy in the summer of 2006 while I was still on chemo. And from age 13 to 18, I did stand-up comedy nationally. I had won two national contests. I performed with David Spade, Daniel Tosh, Norm MacDonald, Nick Swartzen. I was able That's to meet incredible. Adam Sandler. Yeah, so I went out to California twice and performed with these guys who I'd seen on TV, seen in movies, and looked up to. And I was actually in high school doing this, and I decided that I didn't want to be in high school anymore. I wanted to focus on comedy, so I pulled out of high school. I finished online and did comedy. So at 18, I kind of a little bored with it. And I decided, you know, I, I missed the socialization that school brought me. So I figured, you know what, I'm healthy. I'm in remission. I had been in remission at this point for four years and I decided to go to college. So enrolled in a local college, did a few years there and transferred to the University of Florida. You know, I was living a normal life. Everything, right. you would have never known that I was sick. You would have ever known that I had two brain surgeries. Couldn't even see my scar unless I showed mm -hmm. you. And I went to UF. I got my economics and math degree. Joined, I was in a fraternity. I was in Phi Delta Theta. I was head of philanthropy, head of community service. I helped a lot. I did a lot of uh, events at Shands Oncology Board. I would host lunches. I donated an Xbox to them, bought them some video games, and also raised enough money to buy everybody on the oncology floor a chemo duck, which is a device that social workers, psychologists use for children who are getting a port. So it's a stuffed animal. It's a stuffed duck that has a port, and mm -hmm. it's an educational device that they give to kids 
who are getting a port so they could see, you know, they could feel the port themselves. They could see what it is, what is implanted inside of them. And mm-hmm. it's, it's something that really just helps take away that fear of I'm going right. to have this thing in my body. From there, I, again, everything was normal. I was living a normal life. I graduated. I got a job in finance that I stayed in for a few months and wasn't really for me. And that's when I moved over to medical device sales. Again, everything was normal. And it wasn't until 2019, I started having jaw pain. So I had what I thought was TMJ. I mean, I figured, you know, obviously having two brain surgeries, my cranial structures probably altered, so on and so forth. So I just thought it was TMJ. It got worse. So I went to a TMJ specialist who told me I had a severe underbite and I needed total jaw realignment surgery. Oh, wow. Fortunately, having worked in, at the time I was working in neurosurgery, cranial maxillofacial surgery, I knew that underbites are hereditary, meaning you're either born with them or if you have such a severe contact injury, maybe you were had your jaw broken, mm-hmm. then you could develop an underbite. I wasn't born with them and I'd never had my jaw broken. So I got a second opinion. I went to a oral maxillofacial surgeon and he looked at my x-ray and said, you know, come over here, look at your x-ray. You see anything funny? And the base of my skull and the top of my mandible were about an inch to two inches apart. So there was something there, but you can't see a tumor. You can't see soft tissue on Mm x-ray. So he sent me immediately for an MRI. The MRI came back, which showed a, like a baseball sized tumor. Wow. In my face. So my, where my TMJ is, uh, my mandibular condyle, the base of my skull was this gigantic tumor. But if you looked at me, you'd never be able to tell that I had this monstrosity growing in my face. Right. I went to the University of Miami, Sylvester Cancer, and I had a biopsy done, which the biopsy came back that it was stage three osteosarcoma, but even Mm -hmm. more interesting, this was radiation-induced osteosarcoma that was induced from radiation that I had 16 years prior for GBM in 2003. So in 2003, none of the radiation oncologists told us that this would be a possibility years down the road because in 2003, I didn't have years down the road. I had six to nine months to live. Right. So this is now 16 years later, I have this giant tumor in my face and I started on chemotherapy for that. It was different. I was in the hospital for four to five days with this chemo for this particular cancer for sarcoma. And I was being treated as an adult for the first time in my life. I was experiencing cancer treatment as an adult. It was shocking. It was eye-opening. I mean, you just, I look back and I was so fortunate to have the team that I had as a, as a child, you know, the support between the doctors and, and the pediatric oncology support team. And I had great doctors as an adult, Dr. Weed, Dr. Arnold, Dr. Trent, all of these, uh, Dr. Peleg, all of these surgeons were just incredible, but they don't have the time to that the pediatric oncologist did to have that individual kind of relationship. It was, it was more transactional as an adult. So 
I'm in chemo and this chemo, I actually lost all my hair. So as a kid, I never lost my hair. Remember, I never looked like I had cancer ever. There right. was never a time in, in my life that I looked like I had cancer until now. So I was completely bald. I lost some muscle mass. I was still, you know, trying going to the gym, but this chemo was brutal. It was four days of infusion. I, I kept drinking water, which funny thing was I drank so much smart water one day in the hospital that they had to stop my, my water drip. They were afraid that I had way too much fluid. I guess my blood pressure rose a little bit. So I'm the first person in Sylvester cancer history to be cut <laughs> off from water. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, this time around, you know, the last time I was, it was a lot different as an adult. I've, I was definitely a lot more depressed and I think it had a lot to do with not having that support group. You know, I obviously friends and family were just, they were amazing. I had so many friends from my fraternity, from, you know, outside of college, obviously my family, but it's just, it was different going through it as an adult and I wasn't as positive and it was kind of, you know, for the first time ever, I remember I just finished treatment was just unplugged from my IVs. I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh my God, I have cancer. I look like I have cancer. I look sick. I look depleted every which way. My bags under my eyes. I was just not looking good. And so for the first time, I looked sick and then I started feeling sick and thinking sick. And I said, why me? which I had never said before. I had, as a kid, I never, never said, why me? Because I had seen so many other kids battling it. And after I said it, I kind of just snapped out of it. I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is not how you got through cancer twice as a child. You never had a why me attitude. And I also realized that, you know, why me? Why me? When you say that, it, it sounds like whiny. Why me sounds like whiny. That's a whiny attitude to have. And so I stopped. I stopped that and I realized that I, I don't know why me. I'll never know why me. Sure, I have a genetic predisposition to cancer, but I don't know why me. And even if I did, it wouldn't help me. So that's where, I mean, I just, I battled through my last round of treatment. And then I got the surgery, which the surgery involved removing my fibula on my left leg, removing my mandible from the base of my skull down to the base of my chin and replacing it with a plate and my fibula. And I had uh, three surgeons do this procedures. All three were, are board certified plastic surgeons. And so I'm fortunate. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm George Clooney, but I definitely don't look like I had half my face removed and replaced with my leg. Right. <laughs> so they did a great job. And, and since then, I just, I've already had such an appreciation for life, but knowing now that I was able to do this again for a third time as an adult, where circumstances are different, different stresses between finances, work, relationships. And I did it and I'm here and now I'm able to have these conversations with people like you. And because of this organization, I was, I've spoken to people all over the world since you guys 
talked about my story. And so being able to do this is awesome. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the conversation. It's so incredible. I remember we shared your Warrior Wednesday story. I want to say it was over a year now. And since then, I know that we had a feature for you in Newsweek. And can you talk yep. about, you know, the the people that have reached out to you since then and the conversations you've had with current cancer patients all over the world? Absolutely. So I've spoken to people in Finland, Sweden, India, Saudi Arabia, Germany, Estonia, Ecuador. I mean, you point to a corner on the globe. I've spoken to somebody there because of that story, because of the Newsweek article. And everybody wants to know how, you know, how, how are you surviving? How are you doing? And I, I always tell them, you know, I had a horrible situation with the best circumstances. If you really look at my GBM, you go back, okay, I'm 100% ambidextrous, so I'll have no cognitive or physical ailment whatsoever. I have no deficits that I didn't already have. I'm not perfect, but <laughs> then you look at my tumor itself. It's 100% encapsulated, which actually stems from the fact that I have a genetic mutation called Lent syndrome, which is just a Christmas tree of cancers, colon cancer, breast cancer, GBM, all gastro cancer, skin cancer. I've had melanoma a few times. But the interesting thing with that genetic mutation is our bodies are essentially predisposed to cancer. So it's almost like we have this force field, this protection of cancer. For instance, my brother's colon cancer was gigantic, but it was completely encapsulated. Part of my mom's colon cancer was encapsulated. And so it seems like we get these high-grade cancers, but our bodies fight against them before we even have to start using any sort of chemo or surgery. But one thing that I tell everybody, and it's something that my mom did for me as a kid and as an adult, I did for myself when I was going through cancer, be your own advocate. If a surgeon says something, if a doctor says something to you that you don't agree with, just know there's about a million surgeons on this planet and you'll find one that's willing to help you. And obviously I'm, you know, I'm fortunate enough to live in the United States where there's plenty of trials going on. There's an abundance of you know, surgeons and doctors and you know, the healthcare system, so on and so forth. But there's always somebody out there who will be willing to help you. And that's actually the person I was talking to in India his brother's tumor had come back and they had surgery, but they didn't have any option. The surgeon who they were working with just didn't give him any options. They said that was it. And I spoke to him and I said, find a surgeon who will put him on Avastin, which is another form of chemotherapy for GBM. And he found that surgeon, found the oncologist, and his brother's on Avastin now and he's thriving. He's doing so much better now. And that wouldn't have happened unless he advocated for his brother, or his brother advocated for himself as well. So it's so important to, especially for parents listening to this, if your kids are diagnosed with cancer, don't throw them in the towel. And you got it. It sounds hard, but you have to stay positive. I was very fortunate that 
my mom, my brother, my sister, we all have a unique sense of humor. I guess you would consider it a dark sense of humor. So when tragedy strikes, our default is comedy. And it's true. I mean, I've laughed more at my cancer situation than than anybody else has. And it's, you know, I, I'll make these jokes and people are like, oh my God, are you, are you sure that's okay to say? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, yeah. it's, but it's so important to stay positive. And there's actually a study done with diabetes patients who they monitored two groups. They showed one group a lecture video, just like a regular college lecture. They showed the other group a hour special of stand-up comedy. And they found that the group that watched stand-up comedy changed their DNA, 23 genes in their DNA, upregulated them, and decreased their glucose levels through laughter, where the other group had no changes whatsoever. And so laughter and having a positive mindset, being mindful of your mind, watching the way you think about yourself especially, is so important during this time, because guess what? If you got cancer, you're going to go on chemo most likely. You're going to have surgery. In the mirror, you're probably not going to be what you want to be. But and as an adult, that was you know the hardest part for me. I went from being able to be in the gym, being kind of like an image of health to bald-headed and you know sickly. But that was something that I was able to, one, use as comedy, but two, just use as a motivation that I'm going to get through this and I'll be able to get back in the gym. But it was more of feeling, you got to make sure you feel better than you look. And the best way to do that is the way you think. And I can, I'll give you a, an example of just how important this is. There's going back to that why me attitude. And it's something that we can all fall into. And you don't have to have cancer to have fallen into that. You could have lost your job. Something could have happened. You could have been stuck in traffic. I've, I've had that attitude just sitting in traffic in Miami. But there's always one person who I think of who snaps me out of that. And that's somebody who I went through chemo with, uh, who's no longer here. But he embodied positivity humor, health, and he had every excuse to say, why me? His name is Stephen Cooper. And when I met Stephen, we were both the same age. We were both 10 years old. He had already been in treatment since he was two. When I met him, he had no legs below the knee. He was in a wheelchair and he just had his left hand amputated. So he was a body with a right arm. But what he made up for... <laughs> For his limbs missing was attitude. He had the best attitude ever. And this is a kid who not only was his life difficult because of cancer, but he was raised by a single father because his mom tragically passed away right before he was diagnosed from an illness. So it was just him, his siblings, and his grandmother occasionally would come over. But, you know, this kid had every single reason to feel sorry for himself, to be down, and he never did ever, ever, ever. He would wheel into the oncology ward and you would just feel his energy. He would make everybody laugh. And he, sometimes he wasn't even trying to be funny. But when he was trying to be funny, he was just on. That kid could make anybody laugh. And he had zero filter whatsoever. I'll never forget the girls at the, uh, at the oncology support team decorated for Halloween. And they were so proud of themselves. They spent all day decorating for Halloween. 
And everybody who came in was so impressed. You know, oh, you guys did such a great job. Everybody complimented him. <laughs> then here comes Stephen. Stephen wheels in and everybody's just waiting in anticipation. Oh, God, does Stephen like this? What's he going to say? And he goes, hmm, who did this? And oh, well, I did this. I did that. And he goes, yeah, you know, it's very tacky and I don't like it. It's not very spooky. (laughs) You couldn't even be upset at him because he was so real. He was so genuine and he never used his disabilities, which obviously you look at him, he had no legs, one arm. He never used that as an excuse. This is a kid who never swam, never played an instrument, never rode a bike. But he lived a life more than anybody who I've ever known because he chose to be positive. He chose to be, and that's the thing. It is a choice. It is very much a choice, your mindset. And so when I have those why me moments, I think, what would Stephen do? And Stephen handled everything with grace and humor. And it's not to say he didn't get upset or sad. It's natural. We're humans. But he didn't live in those moments. They were simply moments. Just like this right here, this is going to come and go. And so that's why, I mean, it, it's just so important to surround yourself with people who are positive. Right. And that's so important for listeners, yeah, you know, tuning in as well, is that the emphasis on positivity, it truly does make a difference. I mean, you're here at 29 years old, thriving post-cancer three times. I mean, you're doing incredible. And I think it just goes to show that positivity really can impact someone's life. Hugely. And it's, it's your positivity and the company you keep as well. Again, I, I stress this to parents of kids who are diagnosed with cancer. The one thing that kid wants is a normal life. They want to be treated normal. And I remember that's why on days that I wasn't feeling 100% as a kid, I would still go outside and play because I never wanted my friends to be like, oh, well, should we ask David? So I already had that pressure that I put on myself. And the worst thing that I think a parent can do is validate that pressure being like, yeah, you're not normal anymore. You do have cancer. You do have to take it easy. You do have to take it slow. And that's something that my mom never told me I had to take it slow. On days that I was bedridden and I felt sick, she wasn't going to, she didn't tell me to pull myself up by my bootstrings. You know, she let me (laughs) rest. But on days that I had chemo, and I felt okay to go outside. She never stopped me. Go, go play. When you're not feeling all right, you're here. But going outside and playing, I never left because I didn't feel good. And I think it's because I just had, I had my endorphins were going. I was with friends. I was laughing. I had that normalcy. I went from being infused with chemo hours before to now I'm outside skateboarding, playing tag, so on and so forth. And it's so important because I've seen inpatient. I'll never forget this kid came in. I won't use his real name. We'll call him Matt. He had a brain tumor as well. He had a lower grade brain tumor than me, newly diagnosed. I was at the end of my second chemo and the hospital and the doctor's office, the support group asked me to kind of be a ambassador and also a mentor to new patients. So this kid came in with his mom and I sat and talked with them. I said, you know, hey, Matt, how are you doing? He's like, well, you know, I'm just, I'm scared. I'm like, what? 100%. You could be scared. You could be sad. You could be angry. These are all normal emotions. And, you know, I never told him how to feel because nobody ever told me how to feel. But I asked him, I said, you know, 
what do you like to do for fun when you're not scared? <laughs> you know, prior to cancer, what did you do for fun? And when I asked him that, he perked up. He got excited because he started to feel like a kid again. And he said, well, I love to play baseball. And I said, well, that's great. Baseball's awesome. And as soon as we got on a roll, his mom interjected and said, well, Matt can't play baseball anymore. So I was like, well, okay. Prior to my cancer, I was signed up to play tackle football. A week before I was, was going to start the season, I was diagnosed with cancer. But I still love playing football video games. Do you play any video games? And he got real excited again. Yeah, I love, I love playing baseball video games. I play this game. I play that game. And his mom interjected again and said, well, Matt can't play that as much as he used to because it makes him dizzy. And I watched this kid time after time get excited and then just have his soul ripped out of him by his mom. And that was, I think it was more so his mom, how she was coping with it. She was upset. She was angry. And she thought, I don't have a normal kid anymore. And it is the parents battle like the kids, but do everything you can to make sure your kid's in a positive mindset. So I sat with this kid and his mom for almost an hour. And afterwards, I remember saying to my mom, I was like, mom, I just, I, I don't think Matt's going to make it because there's just nothing positive in his life. His mom is so negative with everything she says. And sure enough, I was right. And it might not have been because the positive energy. Well, well, to be honest, he was hit by a truck. But oh, wow. <laughs> I'm joking. That's the dark sense of humor. But Wait, no, he, <laughs> he, oh he unfortunately, <laughs> he unfortunately, he did pass away from his cancer uh, about a year after treatment. And in that year, I had still talked to him. I had tried to break him out of his funk. And I really wanted to talk to him before he started middle school, before he started being around friends and so on and so forth, because I knew at home he was just being just so much negative, negative energy. And that's why I think it is absolutely essential during everything, during any sort of adversity, find positive. I don't know how people find positivity. Mine was through humor. Mine was through doing exactly what I just did there, taking a dark situation and making myself laugh or making somebody else laugh. Right. That's how I handle it. Some people might handle it through meditation, through exercise, through as long as you find an outlet to channel what you're feeling into something positive, and there's something out there for everybody, you will feel more complete. You'll feel like you have a purpose. You'll have more faith in this journey. And also watch the company you keep. Obviously, as a kid, it's tough. You can't you can't pick your parents if they're negative. It's going to be tough. But as an adult, you have no reason to hang around people who are neurotic about your cancer, who are, oh my God, are you okay? Oh goodness, what are we going to do? Are you going to fit? You know, that type of stuff. And I was fortunate enough as an adult, my friends didn't do that. They were the polar opposite. They were, you know, get up, let's go. We're going out. We're doing right. this. We're getting you out of the house. I just think it's important to keep as much, I guess you can call it normalcy, but also just healthy habits as possible. And if staying active, you're a social person, don't become a recluse when you get cancer because your whole world, you're going to change your world by doing that. Cancer is already going to change your life as it is through your health. 
Right. But it doesn't have to change who you are spiritually or mentally, emotionally. That's your choice. I think an interesting follow-up question for you is, you know, you mentioned that you had these play activities like going outside with friends and, and doing comedy when you were a kid. How, during your adult cancer journey, or even now to this day, what do you feel like are things that make you happy? And what do you enjoy doing for fun? Or when you were an adult going through chemo, what were some of those things that brought you joy? So going through chemo as an adult, I tried to stay as active as possible at the gym. I love exercising. I love working out. I've been, I've been a part of a gym for 16 years now, since I was 13 years old. I've been working out. I've worked out with my brother. And a lot of times in college, I, I trained people. I was a trainer at the YMCA for a little bit. So that's my happy place. I love exercising. I love working out. What I also love doing is socializing, being with friends, whether we're going out for try a new restaurant, or maybe we're going out for drinks. But I think another thing that I love that I'm extremely passionate about is this, what we're doing right now, talking, motivational speaking, being on stage, whether it's telling my story or just talking in general, just having, you know, it's almost like a form of therapy because I start thinking about things that are like, oh my goodness, like, yeah, I, I did do that. And not for nothing, I, I pat myself on the back because I think back of everything that I've kind of gone through on this journey and I'm able to now help other people. I, like I said, I've talked to somebody in Estonia about cancer treatment. I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to geography. I couldn't point to Estonia on a map, but I've helped somebody there. Right. And just having that, being able to give back. I don't think that I survived cancer three times because I'm lucky. I definitely think I have a purpose. I have places that I can contribute. And that's why I'm so fortunate to have this outlet, to have, to have you guys, to have the hospital that I was treated at, to have Sylvester Cancer, to have St. Mary's everywhere and have people reach out to me. Don't ever be afraid to reach out to me. There's some things that I could help you with, with treatment. I will always try and, and point you in the right direction. But where I think I can help you the most is, is probably just mindset and being positive because the the treatments I were on just kind of fell into my lap. But my mindset and my attitude were a choice that I made and the company that I kept. So, yeah, I mean, doing stuff like this, like this, I would consider a passion and a hobby. Okay. For sure. No, I, I definitely think, you know, we've gotten messages once we shared your story about just people condemning and just saying how thankful they are that we were able to share your story because that they've reached out to you. And so I think it's, incredible, this community that we've built, that's not only given you a platform to talk to people, but it's your story is so incredibly inspiring. I think for everyone listening, David truly is, you know, living proof that, again, positive mindset really does help. And it's just so, so, so important to continue to be positive during your entire cancer experience. Absolutely. And I mean, if cancer's taught me anything, it's obviously from what I've seen with people coming and going because they've passed away from cancer at such a young age to now as an adult. Life is, is pretty short. I know it's cliche, but there's a whole world out there outside of your comfort zone. Go find it. If there's something that you've been wanting to do and you're, something's holding you back, especially if it's something as silly as fear, if you're afraid to do something, just enough. You know, If you've always thought jumping out of a plane was 
was interesting, do it. Jump out, jump out of a plane, go scuba diving, swim with sharks, talk to somebody who you've always been afraid to talk to, get on stage, just get out of your comfort zone because you'll realize that at the end, you know, when it's, when it's all said and done, don't try and keep a few things off the table that you wish you did. We're not going to be able to do everything we hope we do. I hope that one day I could fly without a plane. Probably not going to happen. It's so funny. I have I have a list of questions to ask you. And as I continue going down the list, you're like preemptively answering every single one of my questions. I was just going to ask before. you if there's anything that you want to do in your lifetime, like top, top, top of the list. What is it that you want to do? Absolutely. So from, I kind of break it up into categories as far as experiences and personal side, I want to explore. So this year, actually, at 29 years old is the first time I ever saw snow. I saw snow in February. And last week was the first time I ever left the country. I went to the Bahamas, which barely counts, but I I got a stamp for it. Yeah, (laughs) But uh, I want to explore I want to have experiences in different places. Um, I've always wanted to skydive in Switzerland. I want to go in a hot air balloon in Turkey. But that's just on the adventure level. On, on a personal level, I want, I want to be a speaker. And I don't want to categorize it as a motivational speaker or a comic or a storyteller. I just want to be a speaker. And I want to be able to get out there and speak to people of all walks of life, not even necessarily about cancer. I mean, sure, I could do that, but more so about humor and being positive, not telling people to be positive, but just kind of explaining my view of positivity, but also getting other people's views of it and just surrounding myself with that. I also am interested in writing a book. I don't know about what. I've always felt weird about writing about myself. Somebody else would have to do that. Yeah, (laughs) I I get a ghostwriter. Exactly. I mean, I'm definitely, I've done a lot, but I've done so little in my life. I mean, you know, obviously the surviving cancer, like, yeah, check that one off the list three times. But that to me is, it's an accomplishment, but it's a forced accomplishment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I didn't set out to do that. But what I did set out to do was impact other people's lives and, because like I said, this organization, this podcast, The Post, Newsweek, Pediatric Oncology Support Team, all these people who are giving me the platforms and the opportunities to share my stories or just talk to people, I'm able to do that, which is definitely, that's my main goal. I love what I'm doing now with work, but if I could eventually transition into my career is speaking, that's the end goal right there. And definitely from this conversation, I mean, I would sign up to hear you speak. I think, you know, not just because we've connected through our organization for, you know, over a year now, but you are super inspiring. And I think anyone listening to this, there's just like this like energy that can radiate just from listening to this. The energy and the positive attitude that you have is just so contagious. And as a speaker, writer, whatever it is, and whatever topic, I think you have a, a long, long future ahead of you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I mean, I'm like I said, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. I've never done a podcast. This is awesome. Me I'm, either. I'm, <laughs> this is the first one. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. This is great. I've watched plenty of them and I've always thought like, how would this happen? Like, is it, do they have predetermined things? But I like the flow. I just like 
flowing and ad-libbing. And I'm sure at times when I listen to this, I'm like, oh my God, dude, shut up. You're rambling. Like right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing, you're doing great. Uh, it's been so much fun. I do have two more questions on my list. One cool. is from one of our GBM community members, which relates to diet. A lot of people want to know, is there any specific diet that you followed throughout your entire cancer journey, whether it was, you know, when you were on chemo, when you were off it, when you were diagnosed, when you were in remission, is there anything diet-wise that you can attest that that might have helped you or any circumstance that's diet-related that you think is important to share? Short answer, not really, but a more in-depth one. This is probably the most common question I get besides what treatment I was on, et cetera. Right, because there's, there's so much question around it. So much question. And the reason there's questions is because there's so much misinformation. And I remember when I was diagnosed with cancer, we had a person in our church whose husband was diagnosed with the same cancer a few years prior. He unfortunately passed away. And I remember this woman was over at our house for the first like month after I was diagnosed, taking food out of my hand. You can't have fruit snacks anymore because sugar, cancer feeds off of sugar. Oh goodness, you can't have caffeine because cancer feeds off of caffeine. And it basically, it got to the point where when this lady was around, I was filter feeding. I was going outside and doing photosynthesis exercises, trying to get <laughs> nutrients from the sun because everything I touched gave me cancer. Now, I've done my own research. I've read plenty of books. The truth is, cancer doesn't feed off of sugar. Sugar is, is necessary. We need sugar in our diet. It's when things are in abundance. No different than if you have too much protein in your diet, some people could develop kidney stones. It's really moderation. So when I was going through cancer, the diet that worked for me was the food that didn't upset my stomach. So on days that I had chemo, I wasn't going to go home and eat a steak because that needing to digest that, it was just too much. I would have soup, maybe have something lighter, like a, like a fish. You know, I think now the only time I really think of diet is, you know, if I'm trying to grow muscle, if I'm trying to lose weight, et cetera. But as far as a cancer diet, I think there's a lot of misinformation and unfortunately a lot of marketing schemes put out by people who are trying to profit off of cancer patients and telling them, follow my diet, read my book. And you'll, um, my favorite thing is, you know, people say certain diets get rid of free radicals. Well, no, free radicals, which is what cancer stems from, from these rogue free radicals, they're always in our body and you can't see them. You don't know they're there unless you have a super in-depth microscope. So trying to get rid of free radicals is like saying, oh, yeah, this will help get rid of white blood cell count. Like, no, it doesn't make any sense. So well, I think it's interesting because there's so much, there's not enough research, you know, diet related. And I think every single person that you speak to regarding nutrition and cancer has something different to say. 100%. And so I think as someone as part of the community at this stage, you know, now hopefully there's more solidified answers over the years to come, but it's confusing for anyone because you can get a different answer from every single person you talk to. And so I think Absolutely. it's all about trial and error and what makes you feel good and what works for your particular situation. I always say when it comes to diet, every body is different. Everybody's body is different. And that goes with exercising as well. I think, honestly, that's one thing I will say is exercise. 
do some sort of physical activity. If you can't do strength training or weightlifting, walk outside. If you can't walk outside, do some form of meditation. That you've got to stay active. Keep your mind active. Keep your body active. Weight training, for instance, going through this last round of chemo. It was a muscle-wasting chemotherapy. That was one of the side effects. I continued to weight train. I lost strength. I lost muscle. But my joints and my bones stayed very healthy during this because I had that weight training. I think it's super important to make sure you're active, do some sort of resistance training band, TRX machines, walking on an incline on a treadmill, something to keep your muscles and your joints and your bones strong. Another very important aspect, especially for people who are on chemo or have finished chemo, get your hormones checked because you have no idea what that chemotherapy might have done to your hormones. This is something that I found out. I've been on, I'm on three different hormones for the rest of my life. Two are injectable. I would have never known unless I went to an endocrinologist and a hormone specialist because when I was a teenager, I wasn't growing. I wasn't changing essentially. Well, it turns out I had zero growth hormone. My pituitary gland wasn't firing off. So now I need exogenous forms of growth hormone. I'm on thyroid medicine, et cetera. And it's so important because you will not feel good unless your body has these hormones. And that it's just as easy as finding a hormone replacement therapy doctor, going to an endocrinologist. Unfortunately, you know, when you're in remission with, with cancer, you actually end up getting more specialists than than while you were going through chemo. I used to just have an oncologist. Now I have an endo, a cardiologist, an oncologist, a neurologist, every ologist. Exactly. I've got a whole army, but it's great because I get answers to what I'm feeling. So it's super important, uh, especially for men. You know, if you went through chemo as a kid, as a young man, chances are some of your hormones are going to be messed up, get them checked. And it's such a simple fix. And that will be life-changing. If you have a hormone deficiency, if your antibodies are off and you get them checked and you start a medication, which the thyroid medicine I'm on is as simple as a pill every morning. It's not everything has to be, you know, a routine or something like an injection, so on and so forth. Um, But that's very important. Get your hormones checked. That's super, super interesting. I think you've definitely provided a very in-depth and unique perspective. I don't think there's, you know, a giant pool of people that have the experience that you do and the knowledge that you've been able to learn from your entire journey stemming from when you were just 10 years old. So I really believe that every single listener is going to take away a lot of information. I mean, even I've learned a lot just hearing you talk because so obviously the reason I started the nonprofit was because my father was sick, but none of this ever impacted me. One, just because my father had passed away, but this wasn't something that was personally affecting me with my personal need to go to different doctors. And I've never even heard the conversation about hormones. So I think that's just, it's so interesting overall and changing a stigma of learning about different types of cancer and how to deal with it, especially from a long-term survivor. It's so important because I think it's just general knowledge that everyone should be aware of. And so I really thank Absolutely. you for, for coming on the show and being able to share your experiences with everyone listening. I, I definitely think that it'll make a huge impact. And I'm so happy to have had you on the show with me. No, this has been a blast. And, you know, 
down the road if I'm always up for another one. I think this was this was great. Absolutely. We're uh, season one is almost done recording. We're going to go for season two. You know, it's a uh, part of our mission to continue raising awareness and hopefully, you know, doing 10 times that. So again, awesome. thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Looking forward to doing it again. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And to anybody who listened, like I said, I could be as much resource as, as possible if just reach out to me. And if anyone does want to get in contact with you, what is the best way for them to do that? They could do it off of Instagram, D underscore fitting. So fitting without the G. That or just my email address, which is David underscore fitting at yahoo.com. Not only is David a long-term survivor of glioblastoma and cancer three times, he is also one of the only Yahoo users to this yes. day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I used to I'm have one. I used to like make, decorate the little avatar. I used to love it. That was like my first yeah. email ever. I've had that thing for, I've had this email for like 20 years. <laughs> you should go back one day and just go all the way to your sent messages and check the first email you ever sent. Oh my goodness. Probably a virus alert from downloading music off of LimeWire. <laughs> or it might've been one of those, uh, those things that people used to forward as kids, like, you know, like bad luck's going to happen to you if you don't send this yeah. to 50, to 50 <laughs> you of your friends. It. I was like, oh my God, the world's going to uh, end if I don't send this email to everyone I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, again, thank you so much. This was so much fun. And I really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you for having me. It was an honor and it was a blast. So yeah, absolutely. Let's do this again sometime. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org, where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.